And would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. You'll find it on page 1094 in the Church Bibles, 1094, the second of the two readings that David read for us earlier. 1094, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And as we've seen from the presentation, it's our gift day next Sunday and the church leadership here have asked me to speak all day, both morning and evening, on the subject of giving. And so that's why we come to Acts 2 today. And let's pray then that the Lord would speak to us as we look at his word together. Teach me, O Lord, of your way of truth, and from it I will not depart, that I may steadfastly obey. Give me an understanding heart. We've sung those words, our Lord. We now pray that you would uh, drive them deep into our hearts, make them uh, uh, exactly how we feel that we would not only want to learn of you, but obey from you, uh, of you today. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to be part of a dynamic, lively church, free from the trappings of dead religion, authentic in relationships, deep in worship, fervent in prayer, and courageous in evangelism. That's the uh, desire that I've heard expressed on a number of occasions from people who are frustrated with the church that they're in, often discouraged by the spinelessness of the leadership, perturbed by the superficiality of the relationships and bored by the formality of the Sunday meetings. It's a frustration that is sometimes expressed in uh, this sort of language. Uh, I want to return to the New Testament church in Acts. I wonder if you've ever said that yourself. Now let's not, look, let's not knock that longing to go deeper and wider and higher and longer into the love of Christ. May God save us from ever being happy to settle for mediocrity or worse. But at the same time, let's not idealise or romanticise what it was like to be part of the early church. The early church was marred by rivalries and hypocrisy and heresies. Read through the Acts of the Apostles and you'll see Paul and Barnabas having such a sharp disagreement that they wouldn't go on mission together. You'll see Ananias and Sapphira living a life of extreme hypocrisy. You'll hear Paul warning of the church of the, the threat of heresy from within. Frustrated as we may be with things as they are, let's not imagine that the early church was a perfect place either. And let's not imagine that it was, either an, uh, uh, it was an easy place to be. When people tell me that they want to return to the early church, they, they're never asking for a dose of the extreme persecution those first Christians suffered. See, in Acts we see Christians hunted down like wild animals and exterminated like vermin. Take the Apostle Paul. Before he was converted, he was one of those who, who made it his mission to murder Christians. After he was converted, the hunter became the hunted. He was beaten and shipwrecked and, and imprisoned and put on trial. And well, and well, life was far from pleasant for Paul. And it wasn't a walk in the park for anyone who followed Christ. In the early church, persecution comes with the territory. Let's not then be under the illusion that a return to the early church would solve all our problems. Quite the opposite. It would give us a whole load more. But having said that, it is an understandable and worthy desire to, be, to want to be more like the early church. 
It is right to long to return to the high standards and wholehearted commitment of those first Christians. And today, as we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, Luke gives us a wonderfully concise summary of the marks of the early church. Acts chapter 2, of course, is Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit upon all people from all nations. Peter has just preached the gospel. And we read, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an evangelistic sermon that was. As he preached about Jesus Christ, 3,000 turned to Christ. And Luke then tells us the result of people captivated by the good news of Jesus and full of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it there, verse 42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Four things then, as we look through, four things that the early church was devoted to. And I love that word devoted. One, a living church will be devoted to the apostles' teaching. I I was speaking to someone uh, only last week and, and they were telling me how when they became a Christian they had an insatiable appetite for the Bible. They couldn't read the Bible often often enough. They they couldn't learn enough. They read books. They went to Bible studies. They listened attentively to sermons. They simply couldn't get enough. As they were speaking, I, I was recalling my own conversion to Christ. When I first became a Christian, I was introduced to a Bible study which met on a Friday evening. It was imaginatively called the Friday Group. As I went to bed on Friday evenings, I was so excited about all that I'd learned, I could hardly sleep. Through the week, I could hardly wait for the Friday evening Friday group to come around again. It was the highlight of my week. I was desperate to learn more. Do you remember that? Being devoted to the Apostles' teaching, verse 42. For us, it means being devoted to the Bible. For here is where we have the teaching of the Apostles. On a Sunday, at home group, on our own, in our quiet times, devoted to the Bible. It's such a strong word, isn't it? Devoted. To be devoted means so much more than having a hurried ten minutes at the beginning of the day in our daily Bible notes. It means pouring over the Bible, studying it, thinking about it, giving it the best part of the day, not the fag end of the day. And please note again where this comes. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. So listen, a Spirit-filled church is a church that is devoted to the Apostles' teaching. That is so important to hear today. When many people cry for a return to the early church and they tell me they want to see the Spirit at work in the church today, they often want to put the uh, the Bible to one side. Look, here is a great mark of the work of the Spirit. Devotion to the Bible, the Apostles' teaching. Please, do not drive a wedge between the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. As John Stott says, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. And note too, the early church didn't dispense with human teachers because they received the Holy Spirit. They didn't cast aside the apostles' teaching because they now had a hotline to God through the Spirit. As Spirit-filled people, Gospel people, they were devoted to the apostles'. And that, of course, is the point of verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and listen, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. The the miraculous, the miracles, the signs and wonders in Acts were done by the apostles, 
And Luke's point is that the, the miracles authenticated the ministry of the apostles. And if you want to follow this up later, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. So then, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, as we must be. Uh, but uh, please, let's not reduce that to mere intellectualism. Devotion to the Bible will see us obeying the Bible. That's what it means to be devoted to it. We must be sure that we're not just listening to it and then doing nothing with it. It's easy to be people who listen to sermons, who take notes, who have our quiet time to attend Bible studies. It's easy to appear to have all the marks of devotion to the Bible, yet not be devoted to it at all. Being devoted to the Apostles' teaching is not about information, but transformation. Changing our lives. We have to keep asking ourselves, is the teaching of the Bible changing our lives? Individually, corporately, in the way we relate to one another. Question. When was the last time the Bible changed the way you behaved? When was the last time the Bible moulded the way you thought and so changed the way you lived? Let me tell you about a man called Chris Knowles. I met Chris uh, two churches back. He was in the congregation at St. Peter's Howard Wood. He uh, was a great man for a preacher to have in the congregation. As I stood up to preach on Sunday mornings, Chris would uh, be sitting right in the front row. He'd get out his notebook with his Bible next to it and he'd look up at me attentively. He'd nod at all the points that I'd make and he'd laugh at all my jokes. Great man. (laughs) Often, Chris would tell me on a Sunday evening the way the Lord had challenged him through the Sunday morning. How he was going to act out, act on the morning sermon. And as I got to know him, it turned out that Chris, on Sunday afternoons, would look over his sermon notes, would apply it to himself, consider how he was going to respond, pray it through, And then by Sunday evening, he could tell me what he was going to do. And by the way, Chris was a father of five with a very demanding job. He was devoted to the apostles' teaching. You see, a living church will be devoted to hearing and obeying the Bible. Individuals devoted to learning and obeying the Bible. Parents devoted to raising their children with the Bible as their rule. The PCC, the elected body here, devoted to making decisions in line with the Bible. Those in the workplace devoted to shaping their careers by the Bible. Students devoting to having their gap year fashioned by the Bible. That's what a living church will look like, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Second, you'll see in verse 42, they were devoted to the fellowship. Now this word fellowship, I... I, I, I fear, it's such a dynamic word, but I fear we've diluted it. When Christians talk about having a Bible study, a prayer time, and a time of fellowship, if you begin to ask them what happened in the time of fellowship, it usually turns out their time of fellowship was a time of coffee when they talked about all the insignificant things in life. The weather, the holiday plans, the football, well, almost everything was insignificant. Verse 42, those first believers devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's not just to having a cup of coffee together. The word fellowship is koinonia. And we have fellowship because of what we believe. Uh, Turn with me, uh, keep your your finger in Acts 2, just one cross-reference this morning. Turn with me to 1 John, right towards the back of the Bible, page 1225. And we'll see where we'll get fellowship from. 
page 1225, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Now the word fellowship comes in verse 3, but I'll read from verse 1, and you'll see John is describing the fact that he's, he met and touched and talked to Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Then listen, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See what John is saying? We're telling you about this one, the Lord Jesus, so that you can have fellowship with God, because there's only one way of fellowship with God, and that's through Jesus, and that you can have fellowship with us, he says, with the apostles. And of course, as we have fellowship with the apostles, so we have fellowship with one another. Koinonia, fellowship. And you see, from 1 John 1, it tells us it's what we believe in that unites us. Unites us to God and to one another. And what we believe in will then result in what we share out. And that's uh, Luke's point in Acts 2. Let's flip back to Acts 2 now. See, look how they were devoted to the fellowship. Look how that was worked out among those first believers in verse 45, 44 of Acts 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. See, fellowship koinonia is expressed in the way we give to one another. Uh, Paul uses this same word koinonia for the collection that he was organising among the Greek churches in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and that, that's a passage that I'm going to be speaking on this evening. Koinonia, fellowship, is so much more than having a cup of tea together. It's about having everything in common, verse 44. It's about being sure that there are no needy people among us, verse 45. You see, in, in studying this this week, I've seen that fellowship has far more to do with giving than I'd ever realised before. And that does make sense, really, doesn't it? If we're really united to each other, then we will be making sure that we look after each other in every way. Look, I, I think of my brother David, my, my blood brother David. I would do anything for him, not because I'm a magnificent brother, but just because he's my brother. Because he's my brother, if he turned up and said, look, I need a bed, I've no longer got my home, well, of course I'd give him my bed. Of course he can have a bed for the night, or for longer, or for as long as he needed. If he and his wife Sophia turned up and they said, look, uh, we've got no money, we're, we're destitute, well, we'd empty our bank account for them, wouldn't we? Of course we would. Not because I'm a great brother, but that's just because that's what brothers do. And that's how the early Christians saw it, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, in our highly materialistic and individualistic society, these are hugely challenging and disturbing verses, aren't they? Verse 45, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone, to anyone, as he had need. I have been so challenged by this this week. Look, I've got to tell you, I'm still trying to work this out. I am so rich, and yet I'm so poor at giving away. I have so much, and yet I want more. Let's return to be more like the early church, shall we? Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave anyone who had need. 
Now let's get on to eBay and sell the things we don't need so that we can give to those who do. That would be a good way of uh, working out verse 45, wouldn't it? I I said that at the first service and asked somebody if if anyone in the congregation would help me to to understand how to use eBay because I've never used it in my life. And somebody has already said they will. So Caroline and I are going to have a lesson in eBay over the week and then we'll start selling stuff so that we can give more to others. It's a good thing to do, isn't it? How much stuff have we got stacked away that can be sent, that can be sold so that we can give? Must be tons. And be sure, whatever it looks like around these parts, there are plenty who are in need. We may think that we'll struggle to find them in Fullwood. Well, there'll be people in need in Fullwood. There are people here who are needy financially. There are tons of people who are needy emotionally. And as you and I well know, there are thousands in Fullwood who, need, who are needy for the gospel. See, we can't avoid the challenge to give to those who do need as we've already considered in this service, next week's gift day gives us an opportunity to respond to the needy. There's more to do in forward. There's tons to be done in Sheffield. Let's be a giveaway church. The PCC have recently been thinking about this, this very thing, giving away money and people and resources, church planting into the needy areas of this great city. There's been no decisions made on it, but we're thinking in those terms. And the exciting fact is that if we give enough money at next week's gift day, then we can start new work in other parts of Sheffield that are needy for the gospel. Look, we certainly don't want to be a church that grows fatter and bigger and obese, just sort of sucking into forward. There's nothing glorifying to God about that. We must be a church that gives and looks outward all the time. A mark of the living church will be, verse 45, to sell our possessions and goods and give to those in need. Question, does verse 45 tell us that we must sell all our possessions? Well, let's be sure, Jesus and the apostles did not forbid believers to have private property. Just look down to the second half of verse 46. They broke bread in their homes. Very important, many still had homes. The prohibition of private property is a Marxist doctrine, not a Christian one. So, no, this is not a command for Christians to have no private possessions. Of course, those of you who are really sharp this morning and who know the Acts of the Apostles may be thinking to Acts chapter 5, to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, when you get home, have a careful read of that chapter and you'll see their sin was not that they only gave a part of their proceeds from the selling of their land, but that they only bought a part while pretending to bring the whole. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was the sin of hypocrisy and deceit. You'll see that in chapter 5. The Bible then does not command us to sell everything. And if you want to get technical, the uh, tense of the verbs in verse 45 are imperfect, indicating that the selling and giving were occasional events in the response to particular needs. So verses 45 and 44 do not command us to sell everything we have. Huge sighs of relief from all over the congregation. But as we sigh relief, let's not avoid the challenge of these verses. The early Christians loved one another, practically, financially. And honestly, we could do so much more of this just by simplifying our lifestyle. By not buying the latest gadgets or the designer labels or having the most expensive holidays or whatever it is. Just at that level, we'd have so much more disposable income, wouldn't we? 
A living church will be devoted to the apostles' teaching. A living church will be devoted to the fellowship. Thirdly, a living church will be devoted to the cross of Christ. Do you see it there in verse 42? They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Literally, it is the breaking of the bread. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Remembering the death of Jesus Christ. Devoted to the cross. Now again, let's be clear. The breaking of the bread here was more than eating together. That becomes clear in verse 46. Do you see it there? They broke bread together in their homes and ate together. And breaking bread and eating together were two different things. Although I dare say they often did those two things together. As they ate together, sharing a meal together, uh, they'd have often ended the meal by breaking bread, remembering the death of Jesus, because they were devoted to the cross of Jesus. Now again, let's stop here. It has become fashionable among some Christians to talk about moving on from the cross and moving into the things of the Spirit. Have you heard that kind of language? The early church wouldn't have dreamt of talking like that, of driving a wedge between Jesus and the Spirit, between the cross and the Spirit. Again, remember where we are. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And here we're seeing the Spirit-filled church devoted to the cross. We never move on from the cross. Jesus told us to remember his death until he comes. The cross is everything for the Christian. It's not just the way we start the Christian life. It is the motivation for the Christian life. Having the cross before me, I will be motivated to live for Jesus as I should. A a former colleague of mine, Rico Tice, has a cross above his bed. And every morning when he wakes up, He looks up at it and he says, a life for a life. Jesus gave his life for me, now I'm going to now, in the day ahead, lay my life down for him. A life for a life. I must say, I I used to work with some amazing colleagues in my last job. Well, I still do work with amazing colleagues, of course. Uh, Let me tell you what some of my ex-colleagues used to say when they woke up. John Stott would uh, greet the Holy Trinity. He would, as he swung his uh, legs out of bed in the morning, he would say, Good morning, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Those were his first thoughts. Richard Buse, the rector before um, Hugh Palmer, would wake up and he would say, Another exciting adventure on planet Earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. Another colleague of mine, Paul Blackham, used to ask the question, Is it resurrection morning this morning, Lord? Rico Tice, a life for a life. Me? When the alarm went off, I'd look at the clock and say, it can't be that time already, can it? (laughs) Well, we'll we'll keep working at the godliness. But Rico, you see, a life for a life. He looks at the cross, he says, Jesus died for me, now the least I can do is give my life back to him. The cross is the heart of the Christian message. It is the motivation for the Christian life. It's when I look at the cross that I know, here's why I want to obey Jesus. He's done so much for me, given so much for me. Anything I give pales into insignificance now. Here's what ensures the Christian life is a life of grace and not of works. And as I look at the cross, the cross is what makes the Christian life joy and not duty. We never move on from the cross. The early church didn't. The living church then will be devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the cross of Christ and finally devoted to prayer. Do you see it there, verse 42? Devoted to prayer. And then see how they work that out. Verse 46, every day they met together in the temple to pray. Verse 47, they praised God. Their prayer was joyful. Again, it's an obvious point, but prayer is vital for the life of a church. Not just praying individually, 
Uh, Praying in our small groups, praying in triplets, praying as a congregation, praying every day, verse 46. That's why, and I'm sure you've heard me say it before, and I'll keep saying it while I'm here, uh, the monthly church family prayer meeting is the most important meeting outside of Sundays. Uh, Will you join us? Will you join us this Wednesday, the 28th of June at 8 o'clock? Just one evening a month to pray. To demonstrate to the Lord that as a church family we are totally dependent on him to work. To remind ourselves that all our efforts are useless unless he works. All this activity, for what? Unless he works it comes to nothing. We need to ask him to do that work. Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. It's a remarkable word. Apart from me you can do nothing. I I always think, this is how I go through life, I always think that apart from Jesus I can probably achieve some things, maybe not as much with him, but I can still achieve some things with him, without him. No, says Jesus, apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing of lasting value, nothing that lasts into eternity. We are totally dependent on him, both as individuals and as a church family. So we must pray. So how about it? On Wednesday, let's have the room bursting with people. I dream of the day when the church family prayer meeting here will have to be held here in church because it's the only building we have that's big enough. You long for that day as well? It'd be a great mark of us as a church, wouldn't it? They are a church that prays. Oh yeah, Christ Church Forward, they pray. Well, the early church was devoted to prayer. We should be too. Devoted to the Bible, devoted to the fellowship to one another, devoted to the cross, devoted to prayer. And whatever else we're devoted to, we should be devoted to those things. But look, if you're on the ball this morning, as we come to a close, you'll notice there's something missing. No mention of evangelism. But of course the point is, you can't read Acts without being evangelistically minded. Uh, here it, well, here it is actually in verse 47. You see they were praising God, enjoying the favour of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Because if you read verse 42 in a vacuum, and I dare say there have been hundreds of sermons down through the years preached like this, you could miss this fifth mark of a living church. But put verse 42 into its context and it is impossible to omit it. Evangelism is the dominant motif of the book of Acts, isn't it? You can't read many pages without them proclaiming the gospel. May I suggest Luke's point is this. If as a church we devote our things to the to devote ourselves to the four things in verse 42, then we will be evangelistic. It will just flow out of us. You see, if I'm devoted to the teaching of the apostles, then I will have to be evangelistic because the scriptures are dripping with commands to proclaim the gospel. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations. I can't read the Bible for long without wanting to proclaim it to others. And being devoted to one another has a remarkably evangelistic edge, doesn't it? Jesus said in our first reading, love one another and by this all men will know that you're my disciples. You see, as we love one another practically, others will be drawn to Jesus. If we were to give to each other as we've been talking about giving, people would look on and say, there's something spectacular about Christ Church Forward. Why do they love each other like that? Be very attractive. People want to know why. It will be evangelistic. And then, of course, being devoted to the cross, well, we have to be evangelistic. The cross tells me every time I look at it to get out and tell the lost of the message of love and forgiveness and salvation that is in Christ. He wouldn't have died if there was any other way to get to, Christ, to, to, get to the Lord, would he? 
And then if I'm devoted to prayer, well, of course, I'll be evangelistic. Do you remember Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The name of the Father is honoured and his kingdom extended when we tell others the gospel and they are converted. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily because they were devoted to the Bible, devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread and devoted to prayer. Well, we've had a little glimpse of what it means to return to the early church this morning. The more we do this, the more spectacular we will be in forward. And the more we'll grow. And the more we'll be a dynamic, lively church, free from the trappings of dead religion, authentic in relationships, deep in worship, fervent in prayer and courageous in evangelism. And as we head towards our gift day next Sunday, may the Lord make us all that we should be to his praise and glory. Let's pray together. Well, a moment of silence for us to make our own response.